Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, a partner in the Dillon Law Group, social media legend and free speech enthusiast. When I started the Coleman Nation podcast in the spring of 2021, its focus was on free expression and censorship on the internet. But as important as that subject is to me, which is very important, I felt hemmed in in the podcast. I wanted to spend more time talking to the interesting people I've met in my legal and free speech work without feeling a need to have them all make the same point. So I culminated the first series of the podcast and have started the second series. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations as much as I have recording them. Hello, culminators. Welcome to Culmination. It is a chilly day in lovely Newark, New Jersey. And just this second, the sirens outside stopped. The peace officers have achieved whatever their goal was. And, you know, that's the that's the great thing about living in the Northeast is that you have so much, so much comfort knowing that there are so many fine agencies of the state just tucking things away. But maybe maybe our guest today will have something to say about that. He's Jeff Tucker, Jeffrey A. Tucker, president of the Brownstone Institute, all kinds of all kinds of academic stuff. Uh, he hangs out with the libertarians. I suspect him as one myself. <laughs> I'm going to challenge him to explain why he, he and his friends have not solved the world's problems by now. Uh, he would think about Jeffrey Tucker. Then one of the reasons I wanted so badly to get him on the program is because he's based, you know, he's one of those big picture guys. He, he like me, uh, not like me. He's an economics nerd, as I purport to be, but he's actually got an advanced degree in economics, not a piddling concentration with a with a football player average uh, in economics. Jeffrey, welcome to the program. How are you, how are you today? Oh, I'm doing fine. It's funny to hear me described as a big picture guy because I feel like I'm always in the weeds, and I have been for. Uh, I think I used to be a big picture guy. It's just that I had the picture wrong. And then and then the lockdowns happened. And then ah. I've been in the weeds ever since, you know, uh, digging through infectious disease, epidemiology, oh. and... Uh, uh, and, and so, so I know that shifted yeah. your focus. Yeah. But we're already getting our head of ourselves. I asked you before we started recording, tell, tell the strangers who you are give, yeah. give us you know what, what why we should hire you for position of executive director <laughs> hey you definitely should not i um I, I, so i run brownstone i founded brownstone and i'm running it and uh the reason for that was that i just felt there was a sense of incredible crisis in the land if not all over the world and i didn't see it being addressed uh, in a way that made me happy so i started brownstone to do that <laughs> that's a heck of a thing start a think tank um, it's been really successful. Mostly, we're, most of our resources go for salvific purposes. I just try to find people who've been canceled, who need a a, a bridge uh, to a a, a different uh, way, um, and give them a community and that sort of thing. You know, we're living in emergency times, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I also have the pleasure, uh, and it's a great, I must say, honor, that the Epoch Times opens up their their pages to me every single day. So I write for Epoch six times a week. But that's more than an honor. That is a tremendous burden. I, I mean, I, when I think about having to come up, I mean, I used to be a blogger. I didn't have to answer to anyone but myself. But yeah. even even I, I mean, because I did get some attention on the blog and you would feel, boy, I really, I, I need a real post this week. You're talking about oh, every day, every day. 
I don't believe a word you just said. You have a million ideas a day. And if you have the opportunity to put those down on paper where people are indulging with their time and attention to read you, you would do it. And uh, for me, it's just a Maybe for money. luxury. You know, it's just a luxury just to be able to like, oh, here's something I think. Oh, I'll write it and here post. Boom, it's done. I, but and, I mean, in the days of syndicated columnists, even talk about people with lots of ideas like William F. Buckley, right? Mm -hmm. Did he write more than two or three times a week? Uh, he, no. He was also no. building harpsichords and sailing around the world. <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. But you were also a guy with lots of other things to do, like the Brownstone Institute. But you, you know, you're making it work. All right. Who am I to say? Well, you know, it's funny you say that about Buckley, because I remember as an undergraduate, he was still around. And I met him, by the way. It was great. Um, uh, but I used to marvel at his productivity. Like, how do you write two columns a week? How is that even possible? And there's another another guy who used to write for the New York Times, then he went to Newsweek, and then he started writing something else. But his name is Henry Hazlitt. Yeah. And uh, he, he wrote probably what is, in fact, the most popular economics book ever to go to print. It's called Economics in One Lesson. Um I, before he died, I had a chance to interview him and I was marveling about his, uh, his, uh, how prolific he was. And I, I asked him, it's a stupid question as a kid. I'm sitting in the back of a limousine next to my idol. And I said, do you, do you ever get writer's block? You know, that dumb kind of <laughs> dumbass 22 year old question. Oh, that's the story is that you asked a stupid ass question. Not, not, not that he had this great repost. Well, no, his repost was was good. It wasn't that he takes Adderall. <laughs> it was. He said. He said, "Look, writing, writing is just like riding a bike. You know, once you once you do it, you you just do it. And if it's your job to ride a bike, you're going to ride that bike every day. That's it. That's what he said. A very pragmatic answer. Yeah, but it stuck with me in a weird way." So I'm amazed so, when people tell me they're bored. Yeah. What, you know, all the things. So, so one of the things that I realize is that many, not everyone is motivated by knowing all the things. And oh, some that's, people really yeah, don't care about the things. That's, that's true. But I don't know. I mean, some people just have, like, I think you have a very, I don't want to just, I mean, fertile, you know, sort of brain in a way, but, but all day I think, oh, you know, here's, well, that's that's strange, or that's weird, or wow, does this have an explanation? How did this happen happen to come about? Why is this happening? And and then I quickly develop a theory to solve my problem. Right? It was like here's a problem. Oh, here's my sort of answer. Oh, that's an article. Boom. And then I just move on like that. You know, I just roll through reality as I see it. I was reading. I, I often keep, especially when I'm reading Ian Fleming novels ah. who he was so erudite and worldly yeah. yeah but he really lived in a time and place that i am not so well plugged into and he uses a lot of terms that i don't know the meaning of so i keep my phone right next to me and i quickly look up of course i forget it immediately but but i look up so i understand what he's talking about and then you find yourself on these Daisy chain journeys through Wikipedia. Yeah, you know, and you're all of a sudden you're with a you're with a gangster, and then and then you're seeing people you're related to, or you know, I mean, it, it, it's the there's so much going on. Obviously, you get what I'm talking about. Yeah. Economics, we both agree. I think is a great 
paradigm. It's not the answer to questions, nope. but it's a paradigm to yes. understanding problems. Yes. You agree? Yeah. No, I, I agree with everything you just said. I mean, um, you know, every field of study can be focused on to the exclusion of everything else and, and end up in nonsense. Uh, uh, and that's true for everything, infectious disease, economics, political science, psychology, you know, uh, you name it. Um, so you need you need a kind of broad perspective, but then you also need a specialization. And also, um, you probably shouldn't write about things you haven't at least developed some, you know, depth of familiarity. I mean, some familiarity with it that's that reflects some competence. Yes, and it's very interesting because, uh, you know, I'm I'm I'll say this much for myself: it's entirely an entirely value neutral statement. I'm a prolific social media content creator. Let's just leave it there, okay? Now, Mrs. Coleman is the yin to my yang. Right. Highly intellectual woman, Stanford Law School graduate, uh, background in the sciences, and she doesn't let anything go until it has been mooted and checked and double-checked and triple-checked. And of course, I get to share in all those moments. Yeah. Uh, but I see how a truly, truly thorough person takes responsibility and and she will not write about something that she can't absolutely get her arms around. I I so I agree with this so much. I'm like I feel very uncomfortable writing things about where I'm I have some sense that I'm faking it. Like I just I don't do that well. So I I tend to uh I tend to want to be not that I'm correct about everything, but I want to be uh, sure of my sureness at least within myself. That so what six I'm days a, six days a week of reasonably yeah. sure about what you're writing about me yeah. that's a decently deep well well I you, never you want the to, seventh day to build back up I never want to fake it you know this is what these plagiarism scandals just outrage me really I mean I'm just appalled by it because you know they sh so it's not it's not so much that you know this gay person took somebody else's words and made them her own it's like okay that's sort of word theft okay but that's not the real problem the real problem is faking it you know, she pretended to know somebody she didn't know. I don't understand how a person can go through life enjoying something that is not rightfully his. Now, if your yeah. mom or dad or God gives you a gift, okay. I listen, I do do I enjoy being incredibly good looking? I didn't earn it in any way. Okay. <laughs> but you know, that's that's how God wanted me to succeed on the internet by being you know, a cheesecake. Okay, I get that. But, but like the, the whole thing with the with the men competing in women's sports, how, how are you proud of that? Yeah, I, you, I, how I are don't, you proud of that? I don't, I, don't, get I, don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. But, you know, apparently we have a whole class of people that are sitting at the commanding heights of our uh, uh, of our society that are kind of ruling the public mind in some way, we're very happy with this. They they think it's the rule of the game. It's just to is just to pretend to know things they don't know. And I find this just appalling. Uh, the New York Times ran an article about the um, Harvard Cancer Institute uh, yes. thing that's going on right now. Where Imagine how bad it got that the Times had to finally acknowledge. I know, and I don't know if you looked at their story. But, you know, there are 58 papers in question, at least. That's just what they found. So, but it's only a cancer treatment. It's not like it has any effect on anyone's life. But the the example they gave, and you you nailed it with your comment about the about the New York Times. They, if anything, they downplayed it. But they did give an example. But the example they gave had nine panels. 
So it was three stages of three experiments. The picture on the top left of experiment one was identical to the picture in uh, uh, the third experiment and stage two. Identical. So Meaning that the peers, the peers are in on it also. They couldn't even have looked. They couldn't even. And there was one that was cut and pasted and you could just see the, 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 the you know, the seam. Yeah. Un, it, yeah. It was unbelievable. This is, this is the kind of thing that when your kid is 10 years old and hadn't finished the math homework <laughs> and excuses himself to go to the bathroom and comes back slightly late. Um, <laughs> and he realized they flipped to the back of the book, turned the book upside down as filled in the answers and then claimed that they had died. Anyway, my point is it's a childish thing. Now, this woman who did this, who was party to this, um, uh, is very high status, you know, adored by everybody with, you know, 14 letters after her name. Um, and I looked at their 990s, and if I, I don't think I was misreading this, but I think she gets $3.6 million a year for doing what she does. Nice. Dragging and dropping pictures, nice. that's going to affect, I, I assume, affect cancer treatments and protocols. At a Harvard Cancer Institute, the most revered in the world. I mean, if this is really going on, my friend. So tell me how this segues with your deep dive into the world of the science, the science of COVID-19. Yeah. Well, early on, um, when all this stuff was breaking, by the way, I had been warning about pandemic planning since about 2005. I mean, I've been writing about this subject for a long time, so it's kind of been on my radar. But when this whole thing broke out, first thing I did was uh, I, I downloaded uh, infectious disease for dummies from Amazon. I read it. Oh, that's interesting. And then I decided, I thought, well, I need to get a little work. So I read a first year uh, medical text and viruses. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. All right. That was prep one. And then I thought, well, now I'll watch some videos. So the very first I, video I watched was of Bill Gates. Well, as it turns out, Bill Gates doesn't know anything about infectious disease. I mean, like nothing. He but doesn't... he is quite wealthy, need I remind you. <laughs> this is the problem. Um, so uh, so he's talking about infectious disease as if it's a, 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 vi a virus on a computer and that the vaccines are like Norton antivirus. I mean, that that's truly the extent of his knowledge. And I thought, we are in big trouble because this guy has given a lot of grants to a lot of institutions and journals and conferences um, and is funding the World Health Organization. These people are in charge, and this guy's an idiot. <laughs> and this is private giving. This is private giving. I mean, I know. we have this inclination, especially someone as libertarian-minded as yourself, you and anyone, today anyone who doesn't got at least some libertarian gear going yep. is absolutely deficient. Yep. Okay, it's government. There's no accountability. And, you know, of course, everyone's eluding the government and, and therefore we need to, you need to shrink. Fine, fine. Good, good, good. Fine, Chat fine. Box. Right. Private money. Yep. Private money. Yep. Highest and best quality control. Where the hell is it? Yep. I, is it so, possible that there's just a quantum at a point at which it just becomes so much money that they are kind of just are like the government in some? Uh, you ask... Profoundly interesting questions, um, and I have to say it's it's rocked my world because 
Yeah, I used to have, a, I would say, a little bit of a simple-minded view, like if we just get rid of the government, then everything would be perfect. Um, but the last several years have, have caused me to adjust that, that the, the problem is not so binary like that, and it's not so simple. Um, there are strange links between the public and private sector that are so deep and so corrupt. And nor is it easy to say, like one thing a libertarian would say was simply like, well, if you know the government is corrupting the private sector, yeah, but it also works the other way, and we've seen many examples of that. You know, with the FDA. You know, I mean, uh, so which is the hand, and which is the glove? It's not so clear. And anyway, our simplistic ideological categories do not shed light on the depth of the problem. So, um, and, and we've also, I mean. I mean, what we see as a general rule, I think, is a sort of risk or danger that comes about from aggregation. From aggregation, because the, because with aggregate, what, I'm going to say the idea of the corporation, aggregation of capital in exchange for lack of accountability. Yeah, essentially, beyond yeah. your beyond your investment, aggregation of resources in academia. Yeah. We're, all, we're all Harvard. We're all in this together. Yeah. Gay stuff is fine. We checked it out. And the bigger institutions and the wealthier institutions yeah. and people who may as well be institutions or even nation yeah. states get the less accountability and the more and, you know, and the more potential to, to, to do harm. Um, but yeah. but on the other hand, we, we also know that great things don't get done except with aggregation, especially in a in a modern world where, where, where you know, we're all electrified already. You know, yeah. we've. These are yeah. So the, the only the answer really comes down to you know the 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 need for for uh, for moral courage and uh, the cultivation of conscience is the only way. Um, by the way, here's a slightly interesting story that I think relates to what your point is here. You know this quote. Uh, in the old days, they used to say quotation. You notice how everybody uses the word quote as a noun now. So I'm going to acquiesce and say we use that as a noun. There's a quote by Lord Acton, who was this kind of kind of a German aristocrat who resided in England and kind of bestrode the continent, you know, in some uh, ways as a historian and pundit. But he said in a private letter, power um, tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. What people do not understand about that was that that was not a reference to government. That was a reference to the Pope. The Pope. Okay, because the Pope was engaged in this uh, uh, tomfoolery at the time uh, called the First Vatican Council, in which uh, he wanted he wanted the, all the bishops of the world to come together and proclaim him to be infallible. All right, not just ex cathedra, but period. Uh, period. Political the, infall political political infallibility. He wanted, which he did not get. Um, but that's what he wanted, and 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 um, Lord Acton reflected on this. He opposed this. You know, I mean, as a political liberal, of course, he opposed it. Um, was he a local... Catholic though, or was he? Or was he? Uh... Well, he was. He was a Catholic. He was okay. So yeah. uh -huh. he was a political liberal, a liberal Catholic, a liberal in those days, liberal, uh, meaning like favored religious freedom. Okay, um, so he didn't want the Pope to be um, 
politically infallible. And they were losing all the papal states at the time, and the and the power of the sword was passing from Rome, and the Pope was was desperate to preserve it. And Acton said, "Look, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely." He was referring to the Pope. So we should take from that a lesson that uh, power can come in many different forms, and 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 sometimes it's a form you might least expect, like Elon Musk. Well, maybe. I mean, it, you know. I mean, this is an extraordinary thing because you have this amazing tendency towards aggregation and towards, uh, you know, agglomeration of all these aggregates into one big bad thing that seems that you know, all, all your fever dreams, uh, you know. Yeah. And then along comes this guy who's aggregated more dollars at a given moment, at least, than anyone ever before, and says, "I'm." I'm I'm going to change the game. And as I often say, he didn't just change Twitter. By changing Twitter, he changed everything. Because yeah. now there was a meaningful platform to which all the other censors, you, you talked about cancellation early on, had to now respond. There was and even YouTube is relatively, relatively more free than it it's, was two it's years. Less ago. bad than it used to be. I think I think that's I think that's right. Um, that's probably true for LinkedIn, and I don't think it's. I'm not sure about Facebook. It seems like Facebook. I think I think Facebook is 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 dragging its feet, but yeah. I'm sure that when the virtual reality stuff gets ironed out, it's going to be perfect. <laughs> well, we'll just go to the metaverse and hang out with him, right? And have cocktails with with Mark. But you're, um, and you, I'm sorry, go yeah. on. Yeah, but your your point is a very interesting one. Um, uh, I don't know what would have happened if we didn't have uh twitter 2.0 and nx i know my friends would have you know the cancellations would have gotten worse so far as i can tell um there was a strange thing that happened beginning in the spring of 2020 where there was a, a real attempt to consolidate media and put an end to um alternative press and put it all together back together again and at a way in which there could be a coherent message you know on the part of all the establishment to to drop onto the public mind and just be done with it and it didn't really work and it hasn't really worked and today um the old media is is in a panic um and i mean this really i i had a long discussion with a new york times reporter uh, a few days ago about this and I just let him talk for an hour and it was really revealing about the old media towards the uh, towards the new media there's a sense of panic but I tell you they're watching it very carefully they also know their days are numbered at least they they feel that way and that's also explains the panic uh, and that, the extremism yeah the extremism that you get on uh NPR, you know, every day. I don't know how often you do this. It's, you it's should the sound of desperation. It's yeah. the smell of desperation. Uh, it's, sweat. it's bizarre. I mean, I turn it on every once in a while when I've got a short trip in the car and I turn it on and it doesn't matter what time of the day, you're gonna hear some insane things. And you can't you can't last more than a few minutes because it's because you gotta, you know, for what I'm paying for this lease, I'm gonna put my fist through yet another screen. I'm not gonna do that. But <laughs> the, libertarians libertarians just loved you know i was representing a lot of these canceled characters and people were you know including lunatics like ken white but but you know even people who haven't lost their minds hey man you know private company private co 
why don't you understand that there's a point at which a private company yeah. can vacuum liberty away from you, regardless yeah. of whether you will, are interested in its economic model, yeah. whether you what's the libertarian? I mean, is there a, a new paradigm to explain this to non-academic libertarians, what they what they've been missing on this? I, you know, um, I've been screaming about this now for years. Um, and I try not to address the libertarians because it's it's boring, but uh, there definitely needs to be uh, a greater. Oh, you mean it, to physically, literally address them in a place with a microphone? Uh, well, even oh, no, you mean even 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 as part of the like the intellectual. Yeah, I, I don't like to dig into the little factions and say, "Oh, you're wrong in this, or you're wrong in that." You know, here's your here's your theoretical problem. But um, you know, Eisenhower back in what is it, '54, something gave the speech about the military-industrial complex, where he really drew attention to this problem of these combines. Um, these partnerships of of state and private sector that's so deeply corrupting. Well, uh, that was back in the day. Uh, well, the that exact model has come home and affected all of our lives now. You know, it's affected our the way our phones operate and the news we we read. And, and not to mention the the, the the entire secret service aspect. The you know all the all the intelligence services, which which yeah. which I also deeply distrusted. Yeah. Uh, but not deeply enough to actually scotch them because he yeah. loved he loved that U two data. Yeah, yeah. The the data is is itself the data mining and you know the marketing of mm. our lives in the form of big data sets. You know, uh, being uh, sold to government and then governments you know sharing them with other private. Like, this is going on. There's nothing we can do to stop it, but it's going on right now, and it's deeply uh, deeply corrupting and and very scary. And but you've got well, you've got a think tank. Yeah, got a think tank. So obviously, you're thinking of ways to stop it, right? Uh, do, doing our best. Uh, uh, for, first of all, you know, we have a major obligation to uh, document what's happening, and that, and, and that the mainstream media is not doing. Um, so we're really deep into all these things. You know, every day we get uh, more FOIA requests coming out. Um, uh, do you and... know Adam Townsend? Or are, you, are you familiar with his work at all? Yeah. Yeah, he has been keeping a sort of massive diary on what you seem to be talking about the same, like all the things, all these things that are going on. I'm going to yeah. connect you guys because I think you might have a very interesting. Yeah, I would conversation like that. With it's it's hard to keep up with all the details, but like yesterday, there's an organization called U.S. Right to Know, and they did another dump of FOIA requests on this thing called CISA, which stands for Cyber Security information security agency agency right yeah which was started in 2018 now that their fingerprints are all over everything of our of our times okay so i don't i mean maybe congress authorized them at some at some point but you know they're they're what's the difference, what's the the, difference? We're, we are in the yeah. post-legislative era yeah for sure and, and so they, they operate believe. under the department of homeland security and the first head of it you know was taken out of the uh, so-called national security agency which itself was a creation of the cia well cisa um, I have known so far, and I've been kind of following them for years now, but um, they were the organization that first announced the division of the American workforce between essential and non-essential. And that was on March 18th, 2020. And they they sent out a chart to find out if you were essential or unessential. And that went out to every um, uh, public health department in the country, which was then distributed to every corporation and HR department of the country. And then we all got the memo, you're essential, you're not essential. It's like, well, who who's deciding this? Not the Department of Labor, 
at this organization called CISA. And then it turned out that CISA had its hands all over uh, the censorship and they were uh, actively saying which accounts uh, Twitter should be amplifying, which ones they should suppress and doing this while all social media companies. Well, US Right to Know yesterday reveals a whole series of documents of weird implications. They were all over the issue of election fraud. Right. Yep. Uh, yep. An incredible, an incredible thread yesterday that that, that some people up Yeah. Out. So now here you have CISA handling, you know, uh, labor relations in, in America, deciding who's essential and unessential, and dividing a wall between all workers in America, uh, deciding what you can say, and, uh, you know, what what messages get out to the public. And now, you know, governing our election integrity systems of voting, and that is one powerful organization. They don't even have many employees and nobody's even heard of them. I mean, what the heck happened? So the Brownstone Institute is, you're getting your arms around all this, and I assume that you are launching it into orbit or setting it to some far out galaxy because what good is it going to do to document it if we're all going to end up in the same gulag together? I know. I mean... You know, I think the very first thing we have to do is increase public awareness. And I don't know how to do that other than just, you know, continuing to to publish, right? Knowledge wins. I yeah. mean, the, the, people said to me that even during the the darkest days of of, of Twitter censorship, um, why are we bothering? And the answer is because yeah. we can, we mu we can and we must yeah. every every bubble of oxygen that's introduced into what is trying to become a closed system gives us more time. And there is something about knowledge and liberty that, that, you know, without getting metaphysical, and I am prepared to get metaphysical, but I don't know if you are, but without getting metaphysical, there is something about, about knowledge and liberty that makes them, I mean, when you and I were growing up through our college years, did anyone think the Soviet Union would ever Bold. I mean, it was supposed oh, no, to be that, like that was a shock, right? I mean, even as late as you know, I mean, I guess '87, we thought it was going to last forever, and then, and then a blink of an eye, it just vanished. I mean, it was, it was, it was weird. So yeah, uh, things changed slowly, then all at once, and I, and how does that happen? Um, and it, it's, it really comes down to the power of, of ideas, which, which is not appreciated uh, in many ways. And uh, just very quickly to explain this. Like, if I have this coffee cup, you can't have this coffee cup, even if you're, I mean, if you came here, you could grab it from me, then I wouldn't have it, right? Um, that's I think, big, a, I think I'm bigger than you. And I, and now it's, we've learned from our discussion with Dave Rubin, I'm older than you. So, <laughs> But physical properties like this, it's got limits. But, you know, you can, I, you can, you can mutate these ideas. The ideas are mutable and infinitely shareable. Um, so it's like the cre creation of an idea is like creation an infinite, like creating an infinitely shareable piece of property, and they enter into everybody's brains. You can take my ideas and not take them from me. That's that's magic. That's beautiful. And 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 ideas are what shape the world. I mean, the things we do, <clears throat> the choices we make, for whom we vote, uh, the way we think about the world. Uh, they all stem from the things we we believe, and the things we believe are influenced by what we read and those ideas to which we're exposed. And that's really the essential disiterata of history itself. It's not it's not like Hegel said that there's some sort of gods of history that are scripting everything out, and we're all just along for the ride. Like then, an amusement then, then there then you're in Marx's back pocket for the rest of that ride because, yeah. because that that those are the historical forces that more people who have who want your coffee cup are interested in 
than the ones yeah, who and, have coffee cup. And Marx was a, was a was a bit of a, a huckster in a way because he came up with this cockamamie idea of how the history should run, and then uh, people said, "Yeah, but uh, how are you going to make that happen?" And so he dug around and found this guy named Hegel who said, "Oh, everything is inevitable." And he said, "Well, look, I'm a Hegelian. My but the triumph of my ideas is inevitable." history it's baked into um oh, people are like oh well that's very interesting you know fascinating that you can see this and nobody else can <laughs> that's 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 a weird subsidy that you're giving your ideological fanaticism just to announce that it's going to happen regardless. at least people of faith acknowledge that there is a faith component to our you know es eschatology and, and that yeah Listen, you know, you don't have to believe it. We've got the Torah. You don't you don't find that to be appealing. You don't like the Bible or the Quran. All right, fine, fine. Then we'll deal with, you know, with, with graphs. But he's saying, I don't even want to see graphs. You're yeah. going to tell me supply and demand, they're irrelevant. I'm, I'm going to tell you forces of history, man. Forces you, of history. And if you disagree with me, that makes you a reactionary. So yeah, it was it was all kind of a racket uh from the from the um 1850s, whenever he started doing this stuff all the way up to the present. But they're still doing it. And this is what NPR is doing. And this is why you get so much anger and strange fanatical hatred and psychopathology masquerading as punditry in places like the New York Times and NPR, because they're mad that the world has not conformed to where they want it to be. So so that now they're just, you know, they're happy to blow it up. I mean, that's essentially it, I think. Yeah, I mean, we have sort of reached a nihilistic tipping point haven't we we're, i mean we're or there's you know this idea that palestine therefore you're not going to work today yeah, that's right that's right carbon <laughs> emissions therefore there's not going to be art i mean it, it is it is and it's an infantil infantilization yeah of exactly that phenomenon you just said oh ideas yeah. ideas well our ideas aren't working out and therefore we're gonna all have temper tantrums yeah that's right well and part of this was subsidized by the by the by the fantasy world that was created by lockdowns right i mean so it's like oh here's some great news uh you can uh just wake up you can shower or not shower uh dress up or not uh just wear your pajamas all day and uh then you're gonna get the same salary and <clears throat> sit at home You'll be more money. productive. You'll be more productive. Not yeah, less. and and the money can be actually going to get more money than ever, and and you you don't have to deal with colleagues. You don't have to deal with HR. You don't have to deal with uh, backstabbing fellow employees. You just sit at home and luxuriate in a hot bath. And you know, one of the best selling items during this whole period of lockdown was a uh, a thing on Amazon called a mouse jiggler. And it was a huge seller. And it's a thing you attach to your computer that makes your computer continue to stay alive. And so so that it gives a, it produces a green button on your Slack channel or whatever. So your boss thinks you're working. <laughs> oh, oh, is that what it is? <laughs> so this this spoiled people into thinking that I mean, look, you know, um it it made people's people had aimless lives going into lockdown anyway. And and they thought, oh, well, this is great. Now I can live an aimless life and and, and be uh, paid for it. So 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 you know, to work is what we're supposed to do. I mean, you can read this in Genesis, right? So you know, God just says, okay, now you have to toil, and eh, you know, that's just that's what you do. You come of age, and then you work, and then you die, and that's just sort of and and you find fulfillment in that, right? And even even and even Marx would agree. That's yeah. that's. Your basic utile, your basic measure of utility in the world is labor. 
Yeah, that's right. And, that's and yeah, that's who you are. That's what you do. That's your vocation in life. You got to figure it out. And so a whole generation now uh, came to believe that they didn't have to do that. And they're annoyed by it. You can look at TikTok now, you know, all these videos. Why do I have to go to work? This is terrible. <laughs> well, sorry, working is just part of life. It's part of bettering the your world and the world around you. And that's just... So at Brownstone, what, like what, what's, what's the soft spot? Like what, what is it you, you guys are thinking is the, the area of endeavor, whether it's intellectual or otherwise, where we're most likely to be able to be able to. Yeah. Toward history and do more than yell stop. Um, so I don't know the answer to that question, but I tell you what, I've got three working groups right now, and I'll tell you the subjects that we're working on uh, most in a most focused way. Uh, the first one is on pandemic planning. So uh, this is very important because there's a gigantic industry worth uh, several trillion dollars, probably, spread all over the world that is plotting to use the next pandemic to do very something very similar to us that they did last time. Lockdowns and- But mandates. better. Yeah, all these kind of things. Yeah, but better, of course, with a better vaccine, of course. And, um, you know, and, and it turns out this whole industry, I feel like I'm giving away the punchline here, but it's a, it's a racket. Um, uh, actually, pandemics have been on the decline uh, uh, since World War II, uh, if not before, actually for a better part of a century. We wash and, our hands now. Yeah, and we have better sanitation. Also, we have more exposure uh, than we ever had, which if you believe in natural immunity, which you should, um, is protective of of infection. So we have much less. So there's no basis for this 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 existential fear of disease X. So, but I've got a team working on this, and they've they've generated several devastating papers, and I just got another one this morning about disease X uh, from this, and we and I cooperated with Leeds University on on putting together this um, working group. Um, a so university really... in the Western world was allowed to ask questions like this in the UK, much less. So you, you're a very sh sharp guy. Um, you figured yeah, out that there's something a little weird about that, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, and I thought there was something weird about that too. So I was a little reluctant to do it uh, because, you know, at first you think, oh, I'll, I'll have a university association. That would make me prestigious. But then you realize that's maybe asking for trouble. So I went into this relationship with a little bit of caution, but um, the researchers there convinced me that they had access to data sets that you can't get outside of a university setting. So that's the value added. So I went ahead and um, so far, uh, so, so good uh, until this podcast. Um, <laughs> Just waiting for the council police to come along. Um, okay, so that's, that's one. one, right? Yeah, that's one. Uh, the second group is working on um, the censorship problem. And I have people on the team that are, have um, all the data from the Twitter files, which we've only <clears throat> just begun to look at the depths of those things. That's It's an enormously complicated uh, problem. And we're using AI to dig through those to find out who did what to whom, who cooperated with what, uh, where does it trace back to? Who gave the orders? I mean, all these problems are have yet to be fully solved. So I've got a team uh, working on that every day, and uh, they're wow. very high, high level and very focused. And so, you know, and again, from my point of view, as the administrator, yeah, I'm, I'm surrounded by smart people. I'm the dumb guy, but one thing I am kind of good at is uh, is going to uh, people with resources and saying, 
hey, can you fund this? And so we've got both those fully funded. Now, third team is focused on the monetary problem, uh, in particular, the drive towards digitization of money and central bank digital currencies. So because, you know, if we get that, we're sort of toast, you know, I mean, already Whole Foods is asking you to, to pay for your groceries with your hand. I mean, and, it's and, and obviously you are wrestling with the problem, why Bitcoin has not emerged as the solution to that problem, I assume. There are many aspects of the problem, and yeah. that that is 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 one particularly contentious and fascinating issue because it was invented to be a peer to peer cash, and now it stopped being that. Um, no question about that. Sometime around 2017, and now uh, people hold it just as a a, a speculative a, investment. Yeah, a kind of security or a, something. Um, and so it's not clear what it's supposed to be. And now we have all these other payment systems. Uh, Bitcoin, when it, when it started in 2009, was really uh, an efficient way of transmitting money. Uh, it was cheap and fast. And then at some point it became not cheap and fast. And then at that same time, we had uh, Venmo come along and many other payment systems that were uh, very convenient. And then Square invented a little thing you could stick on your cell phone so any merchant could get credit cards. And so now we're all credit carded up. Um, but the centralization of banking and credit is is worse now than ever. And we know for sure the Biden administration wants this to become a central bank digital currency. And if that happens, then uh, they won't need armies. They'll just, you know, they can just push buttons like on the Jetsons and cancel you and take away your 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 ability to buy groceries or fill your tank of gas which they're already selectively doing and of course those yeah. the three your three buckets are all interrelated in obvious they, they they really are and uh, they're they're diverse enough to constitute teams so that's that's nice and uh, but where do they, they also, live where, where does this all happen is it a virtual thing or yeah well you have a brownstone somewhere i i don't well you know i can't in my own mind, can't come up with a reason for why we would need a building. Although, you know, we could get one, but I'm not sure that makes much sense. So what we do instead is um, I have these people who are part of these teams, really the Australia, UK, and all over the US. Um, and, and Rome, actually, I've got a guy in Rome. Um, but we come together every once in a while for private retreats. And I, I, what I do is um, I get a hotel and uh, ask them to service uh, food, give us a room with comfortable seats, that like more like a living room than a conference room, and open the bar at cocktail hour. It's, nobody pays anything. And we hang out for three days. And I limit it to 42 people because that seems like the right amount. And everybody makes very short presentations and invites comments, criticisms, and discussions that lasts for 30 minutes, then we move on to the next one. This goes on for three days. And then otherwise we have time for discussion and sharing. I don't have action items at the beginning. We don't seek any kind of group consensus. Um, I just want the ideas to flow freely and without fear and with uh, an ability to listen and share sure. and be open-minded. Sure. Of course, no, no Illuminati thing going on here whatsoever. No. <laughs> <Is it not? laughs> I mean, we do have Chatham House rules so that people can feel comfortable. You know, it's really different when you have a private environment versus when everybody's performing for the public. It changes the ethos, you know, completely. Sure. 
So when you're performing for the public, you have to be you know, conclusive and decisive and know exactly what you're talking about. And then you sign autographs after and everybody's adoring you with selfies. It's all bullshit. Um, uh, I prefer these little private meetings where we're all, I think there's a Latin phrase meaning first among equals. So every person who has the microphone is first among equals. Famous under Paris. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, good, good for you. Good for you. You know, you're St. Thomas. Uh, <laughs> Aquinas. Um, but yeah, so, and and I don't invite anybody who's a big shot or thinks of themselves as a big shot because it's annoying. Um, so I just want, I want people to have their best, truest, most honest thoughts and learn from everybody in the room. And then we go home. And that's, that's it. it. Yeah, well, so, and I've had people tell me because uh, I obviously have, and many disciplines, by the way. So this is part of the goal, right? I want to crash the economists together with the infectious disease epidemiologists, together with the attorneys and the political scientists. And I want everybody and the journalists. Uh, and I want everybody to be in the same room uh, hearing what each other had to say. And they will correct each other. And you have to be prepared to be correct, too, in this environment. But I've had people tell me um, that when they went into academia, that that's the way they thought it was going to be. And it's not that way. You know, so right. That's right. Um, That's right. So I, my own imagination is very much animated by a kind of Victorian nostalgiaism that I've invented for myself in my own mind, and it, and it extended from a trip I took to Salamanca, Spain, many years ago, and I, and I saw the grave of Victoria, you know, the great international law theorist, and he's a tiny little man, um, but you know, all the great. Um, second and third generation of uh, scholastic thinkers uh, live there. And they they generated uh, a whole body of ideas from law to economics to, you know, just everything you could imagine, very high level. And it was kind of the birth of modernity in some ways coming out of that academic environment. But I could just kind of went from room to room and I just recreated an environment in my mind uh, that was idealized maybe and of an intellectual community that was serious and principled and deeply knowledgeable, but also open and willing to l teach and willing to learn everybody. Fascinating. And, and at various periods of history, and again, I'm not saying anything in my head, in my imagination is true, but I do imagine it, that we had something like that in um, interwar Vienna. You know, with various circles of 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 intellectuals getting together and sharing ideas, where Freud was influencing the economists, and the economists sure. were influencing the philosophers, and the, you know, it's it's so beautiful. And then, of course, the diaspora happened. So every every time we get these things together, something terrible happens, and they get all broken apart. But we can't stop trying to put them back together again. That's right. That's what we do. And that process of, of of endeavoring to keep putting it back together is what prevents them from preventing us from putting it back together. It, you simply have to keep at the pressure has to has to be maintained, and you guys are obviously doing it. It's our it's our job, and you know the other thing I learned very early on is I gave up the idea of saving the world. I couldn't do it. I knew that I couldn't do it. I mean, the world was falling apart when I started Brownstone. I could not put that back together again, but. I knew that I could do some good, some good. And as the rabbis say in the Mishnah, the, our responsibility is not to complete the work, but we neither are we free from to, to desist from it. Yeah. And on yeah. that note, we will desist from recording. 
Jeffrey Tucker, I have a feeling we could probably talk for a while longer if we wanted to. And maybe we will sometime and maybe it'll be private too. I like that. <laughs> Great talking <laughs> to you. you. Thank you so much for, for, for putting up with our scheduling nonsense and uh, you know, you, you incredibly, you incredibly distracting camera. It's, it's all good. Thanks <laughs> so much. It. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.